everybody. Welcome to the Angel Investment Research Podcast. I'm Jeff Siegel, filling in for the great and powerful Jason Freert. And with me today is Jason Simpkins. Jason, welcome back to the podcast. Oh, it's good to be here. You are the the guy that we go to to talk about all things war, defense stocks, um, and obviously it sounds crass to say this, but it, this is um, this is a good time for uh, for readers of your newsletter. Um, you, real quick, do you just want to tell us a little bit about what it is that you follow and 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 um, and how it how it pertains to what's going on right now uh, in in Israel? Sure. Yeah. I mean, well, like you said, I mean, I've been following defense investing for now going on 10 years. Uh, this has just kind of been my beat. Uh, and most recently through Secret Stock Files, which is my trading service, where we focus on a lot of technology that's coming out of the government, you know, whether it's like military labs or think tanks. There's always technology that the government's working on to try to get an edge over its global competitors, near peer competitors. That technology often goes mainstream and when it does it tends to make a lot of money for investors and stakeholders um so for me yeah like and i i kind of i think i get what you're saying about how it's like it does sound kind of crazy. i know there's a lot of people out there like i see it all the time online where they're like oh look at these defense companies their stocks going up when all this horrible stuff has happened but i mean my point of view on that kind of stuff has always been one it's always a good time to invest in defense stocks i mean even at peacetime is probably even the better time because you want to prepare for times like this and the mm -hmm. reality is that we can't really change how chaotic or violent the world is all you can really do is prepare for it as an investor and a person take the necessary steps to ensure that you know when the market's tanking because some horrible global event has you know, come about that you're in the, the stocks that are at least holding water, if not going up themselves. And so, you know, I don't think anybody who was invested in Lockheed Martin or, you know, Raytheon or General Dynamics or any of these companies that we'll probably talk about today, you know, mm -hmm. felt bad about, you know, their portfolio or those stocks going up double digits over the past month when all this horrible stuff was happening. Right. Well, and even like you said, even in times of peace, these aren't bad stocks to own. It's not like Raytheon's going to go to business, you know, because right. you know, we have a, a few months where it's relatively peaceful. I mean, it's just a, it's an observation of truth, right? There's always conflict in the world. That's always been the thing. And it's, it's something where, like, in a way, I'm really kind of conservative as an investor just because I look at defense contractors and I go, well, there's the one thing our government can always agree to fund. Like generally speaking, you know, Congress isn't going to agree on much. I mean, I was just reading the news today and they're already talking about government shutdowns again. You know, they're having all these problems. Just getting anything through Congress is just like this massive undertaking. But Republicans and Democrats always seem to kind of find common ground on defense and funding the Pentagon. We saw it recently with these defense budgets, uh, you know, the most recent one, $858 billion. Uh, I was just talking to one of my friends about it. I was like, you know, it wasn't too long ago, just a couple years ago, where I was writing about the defense budget. And it was like 600 billion. Now here we are at 858. And I keep telling people, you know, by the time we get to the next presidential administration, whoever it is, whether it's Biden or Trump or some, you know, other Savior. Uh, candidate that comes out. <laughs> 
knows? But we're going to hit a trillion dollar defense budget in the next probably presidential term. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it, it won't happen next year because, like I said, Congress, even as part of that debt ceiling, they I think they capped defense uh, increases at about one percent. One percent of eight hundred fifty billion dollars is still going to be a lot of money. That's still going to be a significant increase, just not quite the three or four percent increase we've been used to seeing these past couple of years. But truly, you look around the world and again, you know, like this, this, you know, recent, uh, you know, and really, yeah, tragic on events unfolding in Gaza and Israel. But before that, we had Ukraine. And, you know, everyone kind of gets the sense that, you know, a crisis in the Pacific with China and Taiwan is, you know, very likely around the corner. We've seen other, you know, areas in terms of the Middle East, like Iran, Syria, uh, Yemen with Saudi Arabia. Like there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of chaos around there. And it tends to get worse. You know, this, this is just kind of the the new normal is really what it is. And so you don't really have to go far to justify those defense spending increases the way you would when the if the world was, you know, totally peaceful and everyone's singing kumbaya and everything's right. great. You know, I think people are kind of aware now, very acutely aware that globally there's, you know, countries, the United States and, you know, the Western powers are really at odds with this other group of countries in Russia, China, Iran, and, you know, anybody else kind of throwing in with them. So mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a good place to be. It's a safe place to be in a world where safety is at a premium. Well, it's interesting you say, too, you're talking about how they put caps on how much they can spend. We're talking about the government. But it's always interesting to me. Anytime there's a conflict that heats up or a war that heats up, somehow we always find the money. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like, oh, well, we're going to cap it. Well, OK, I mean, you can say that now, but who's going to say what's going to happen six months from now? And all of a sudden we need more money for this country or that country. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it, again, it's sad to say, but there's always there, there are always funds available for uh, war. Yeah, just, well, again, I would also point out that. The reason we've had, and again, in a historical sense, over the past basically almost 100 years, going back basically to the end of World War II, where we haven't really had much great power conflict, that's largely because the United States has been in charge, that we've been this lone superpower, and we've been able to influence the world order in such a way that, you know, whether it's the UN or other kind of like diplomatic efforts, We've managed to keep things suppressed. We've, you know, there hasn't been, you know, this war between Russia and, and Ukraine is the biggest war Europe's seen since the end of World War II. So that's a pretty good track record that we went that long. But again, where did that stability come from? It came from America's dominance. It came from America's ability to back up its its policy, its foreign policy, its global policy with a tremendously capable military. So, you know, peace through strength is kind of like the slogan, uh, but it's, it is appropriate in that way. I mean, if you want to keep things in order, somebody has to have the guns, you know, somebody's got to be there saying, okay, we're not going to allow this, whether it's a genocide or an invasion of a neighbor or anything like that. There has to be some mm -hmm. enforcement behind it. It can't just be strong words. Yeah, but I, I would, I mean, and I agree with you 100%, but to, to add to that, um, our our military power um, is, we it, it varies in terms of where we where we uh, choose to, to show it off. 
so to speak. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we can we you know you can look at the invasion of of Ukraine and say, okay, we're here. We need to defend uh, Ukraine. But you know, how many thousands of people have been murdered in Sudan? And you know, we're not we're not putting boots on the ground down there. Um, and I think there's there's and again, this is a very crass statement to make, but it's true. Um, you know, there are um, there are reasons far beyond saving the Ukrainians that we are actively in Ukraine. And there are reasons that why we're active in Israel it has nothing to do with protecting lives necessarily. I mean, yeah, absolutely. That's I mean, that's 100 percent true. Yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, I'm I consider myself a relatively patriotic person, but I wouldn't go around saying America is some kind of superhero flying around the right. earth, just doing just doing God's work, just protecting, just a, just a consummate do-gooder. We've made our share of mistakes. There is no sure. doubt about that. I mean, and you know, we've seen that, and we're seeing mistakes made now, even you know, by by our allies. You know, uh, it's you can get carried away sometimes. Yeah, there, you get into these issues globally where sometimes there's not an easy answer. Sometimes America screws up. Uh, and But at the end of the day, is the world better off with or without America's leadership? And I mm -hmm. think most people would agree that, you know, while not perfect and certainly flawed, uh, and while America has certainly been guilty of acting in, you know, self-interestedly and, you know, we, someone would call it imperialistly, like, those are all fair arguments, but at the same right. time, you know, are we ultimately, you know, as a global society better off through the promotion of, of democracy and safeguarding, you know, the Western way of life? I, I, I would, I would say yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, I mean, we could have a, a three hour conversation. I do too. I, I love it too, because when you, when you drill down into it and you can start um, seeing the, the mechanisms that are in place, in terms of the government and why we choose to go certain places and what we get out of it and what we don't. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating discussion, but obviously yeah. people could care less about what I think about <laughs> Sudan and Ukraine. And really we want to know about, you know, making money. I mean, that's what, that's why we're here. Um, and I think we will get into that one set. We're going to lead into that. But one thing I did want to ask you, um, and I think this is completely relevant to uh, how you're positioning things as an investor in Israel. Um, I suppose my question is, is this going to spread? Because honestly, by now, I figured that it would have already happened. There are a lot of countries in the Middle East that are very enthusiastic about ending Israel, but I haven't seen much evidence that these other countries hostile towards Israel are going to do much more than funding Hamas and Hezbollah. What are your thoughts right. on that? Um, well, I think for one thing, it, it already is spreading. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about that. I can tell you there have been 40. 40 drone and rocket attacks against the U.S. forces over the past three weeks. Uh, those are coming from those Iranian-backed groups in Syria and in Iraq that have moved in since, you know, Iraq, since we invaded it. And then, you know, speaking of flawed American policy. Right. Uh, you know, like, Just go back so, down that rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, so they've been attacking. Just this morning, overnight, a drone flew into uh, – a barracks at a, a U.S. base in Iraq, and it thank God it didn't actually explode. It was laden with explosives. They just failed to detonate, so this drone crashed into a barracks with all these U.S. troops. Now, mm -hmm. had that drone done what it was supposed to do, and we were sitting here talking about a dozen or so dead American soldiers now dead at the hands of an Iranian proxy group, 
I think that'd be a huge problem. And, you know, again, thankfully, we're, we aren't there right now. But the unfortunate truth is that this conflict with Israel and, you know, Gaza, you know, the Palestinians, either one, one West Bank, too, um, they're gearing up for this to be, they're going to be there for the long haul. I mean, Israel, at least the last I saw, they were talking about taking basically indefinite, indefinite ownership over the security in the Gaza Strip, which is just another way of saying we're really going to fully occupy it. You know, mm -hmm. and everyone I've talked to in the government, in the military, has told me the same thing, that Israel is really determined to make sure that this just never happens again that this is just the last we're ever going to hear from Hamas or anything else, that they're just going to, you know, just basically turn it into a parking lot, that they're going to, you know, take over, that they're, and that they're going to stay there. But once you have that, and you have that kind of military occupation, we've seen already the amount of force, amount of indiscriminate force that's been used to maintain that, then mm -hmm. you start to instigate the other countries in the Arab speaking world. And, you know, it's, that's going to be there. And so long as Israel is, you know, pursuing this path, which it's, it's going to, and again, indefinitely, we're going to have these problems with these Iranian backed militias and other, you know, even independent groups or radical leaders mm -hmm. that are going to want retribution of their own. And they're going to want to, you know, try to destroy Israel. They're going to want to get the United States out of the Middle East. It's the same thing that goes back decades and decades and decades now where we've been having this the whole route of, you know, 9-11 with terrorist attacks in the United States and all that stuff. It's yeah. it's going it, to we're just kind of there now. You know, it's it's resurfaced for a while. It had kind of quieted down or at least so it seemed. It seemed like there was even a point where this year seemed like Israel was going to have this real reproachment with Saudi Arabia, where Saudi Arabia was going to formally acknowledge them as a state and that they were going to make this headway and that we were kind of forming this U.S.-backed kind of coalition with Saudi Arabia and Israel and the United States to, to balance out Iran and some of the other kind of, you know, unsavory characters and bad actors in that region. Well, now mm -hmm. that's out the window. Now Israel is back, you know, looking like a huge target and we're getting attacks on U.S. forces again. So hopefully, you know, they, we do a good job of, you know, kind of shooting some of that stuff down. But like it's happening every day. Also, last night they shot down uh, some like rebels in Yemen that are also back. They're fighting a proxy war with Saudi Arabia in Yemen. So they have this, you know, group in in Yemen, they, they shot down a U.S. Reaper drone off the coast. Unmanned vehicle, no big deal. But like I said, they blow up a barracks. And the U.S. did respond. It was actually twice now we've conducted bombing runs. We blew up two warehouses, one on October 26th and one either yesterday or early this morning. Both these warehouses had munitions, those guns or those rockets and drones that were being used to attack U.S. assets. We bombed them. We bombed two of them. They were linked to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. So we've now conducted two bombing runs in the past three weeks in retaliation to ongoing harassment and attacks of U.S. assets. Yeah, I don't I, I don't see how this is not going to continue to spread. I, I just there's no there in my mind in the way you're talking about this, too. Um, this is this is a long game they're playing. If Israel goes in and says, well, we're going to take we're going to take complete control over Gaza and we're going to wipe out Hamas, um, 
there's always going to be factions coming out uh, to replace Hamas. I mean, that's the history of the world. You know, you have two people fighting or two groups fighting, one winner, one loser. But the loser always has pe- like uh, apologists or supporters that come through and they they keep they kind of keep it going. And I kind of also wonder, um, you know, how much uh, the U.S. actually wants to be involved in this. I don't think the voters do. But I think from a security standpoint, the government probably does. Am I wrong to assume that? I'm not really sure. I would imagine throughout the U.S. government, there's probably differing opinion on that. Um, I'm sure because, like, you know, in every country you have hardliners and hawks and people who are more inclined to t- go the diplomatic route. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I don't think, honestly, if like that the Biden administration really wanted this because for them, it's been a political bomb. It's been terrible for them because they're in a, they're in a lose-lose situation because they back Israel and everyone goes, well, now you're backing Israel's genocide of the Palestinians. And it's right. like, okay, well, we don't want to do that. What would you do? Not back Israel. And then you have all of like, you know, the, the Israel lobby and the Jewish people, I think rightfully going, you're not going to support us here after this horrible terrorist attack. And, you know, when nine 11 happened to you guys, we had your back. You're not going to have ours. You're not going to look after like our interests. Like we're, we've been your strongest ally in the region. We're on the front line here and you're, you're going to take their side down. So there's, no right side to take if you're just kind of put in this position where you're like you're you're screwed either way you know you're damned if you do damned if you don't and i don't know how much the american voting public is gonna penalize the biden administration for that uh but you know that's for them it's a political probably a political headache more than anything else now again if we talk about the interests or you know in washington dc or the beltway interest at a very high level which are often, again, you get these defense contractors, the national security apparatus, the defense apparatus, a lot of that stuff's intertwined. Are they looking at their bank accounts and at their share prices and going, hey, this is this is good for business? I'm sure there's some of that kind of cynical idea, notion of profiteering, is there always mm-hmm. is in any kind of war. Yeah, I mean, I, I would not be a. Listen, I, I don't, I don't really consider myself a conspiracy theorist. I, you know, I, I have not done a deep dive into any of this stuff. I know very, I mean, I know probably about as much as any regular person, you know, perusing the internet to find out what's going on in Israel. Um, but it would not surprise me if years from now we find out that this was all done on purpose, you know, and it, it maybe uh, Netanyahu knew this was happening and it was a great way for him to keep power. I mean, there's a lot of ways you could spin this, um, but the bottom line is no matter what the reason was, it's now underway. Um, and I think I just read, uh, I have to double check the numbers here, but um, yeah, I read the death count in Gaza is now likely a lot higher than 10,000, which what they had reported. Mm-hmm. Um, not that 10,000 <laughs> is a small number, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. but this is clearly becoming way worse, I think, than some early estimates suggested. Um, it is, and I did want to ask you about this, um, it is my understanding that Israel was embedding AI into its lethal operations, basically to um, select targets for airstrikes and, and yeah. organize logistics. It's actually, I think it's actually pretty interesting, again, not to sound crass, um, but this AI system uses data about uh, military approved targets to calculate what uh, munition loads and prioritize and assign targets to aircraft and drones uh, or drones. M- my question here is uh, how effective really is this AI strategy? Is it working? It's extremely effective and it is definitely, it's absolutely, it's 
necessary to talk about. It's full. It's more than appropriate to talk about because what we're talking about now is just kind of the future of war and what that war is going to look like. And yeah, so Israel definitely uses AI. They've been, you know, they have some, like I said, they have some tremendous research labs and government facilities of their own that have been working on this stuff, some of the brightest minds out there. And they use AI for a lot of the things you said, a lot of it's used for, you know, targeting for identifying, you know, targets. We're finding where things is like with uh, Hamas in particular, a big thing is their underground tunnel network. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cause that's, that's what they use to effectively hide from these bombing runs. It's what they use to sneak in and out of the Gaza strip. Uh, it's, and it's, you know, this was obviously very long and sophisticated network of tunnels. So, like, Israel's been using AI to map that out. AI is also being used in Ukraine. They were they were using it, obviously, you know, I mean, for because they're actual war fighting situations. And so, like, what they would do, basically, is you have all these satellites up in the sky, and they're commercial satellites. It, you know, uh, airline companies have them for like weather and climate and stuff like that. Or, you know, companies like Maxar put them up just to sell the data. Uh, there's okay. communication satellites, all that kind of stuff. So you have all this, this tremendous pool of satellite data. But then what do you do? Do you have a person sit in a room and go frame by frame and like zoom in and out and look at all these different feeds and try to match everything up and figure out what's what? No. You have AI do that now. You have AI collate all this information, go through it, synthesize it all, compare all the videos com- like from all the different angles, and create these very accurate, almost real-time maps. And that is how Ukraine was effectively attacking and fending off Russian artillery because they could see – for instance, like there's a – some of these uh, organizations that basically protect against like forest fires and stuff like that, they have satellites that detect when a fire breaks out in you know a forest, so they yeah. don't put it out. Well, that same satellite can also detect the muscle flare of a howitzer, so they can use that satellite information, find out that there's artillery there, and then target it. Basically, draw up a drone strike on an iPad. And like I said, basically target it and attack it right there in real time. You know, that's the kind of stuff that you can do with AI or what they they call it. Some people call it algorithmic warfare. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that's that's just one of the things. Like you said, the the terms of possibilities for things like supply lines, uh, troop allocation, just, you know, keeping track of all you have all this data and especially the military. They have so much data. They have so much information that it's a struggle to make sense of it all, that you have this mountain and it's like, I guess you can't just comb through it and get a very clear, actionable idea of what to do. Whereas AI can give you exactly that. It can go through all this data. It can go through different kinds of spheres of data and add two and two together and tell you the answer is four. So like I said, AI is, is absolutely huge and it's a tremendous it, and it's just getting started there you know that these this is just the very beginning you know we, i've been talking about like ai pilots you know we've been talking about like in a report i did a project wingman where you know they have drones that are going to basically be semi-autonomous or autonomous flying alongside manned fighter jets and pretty mm-hmm. soon they're going to take over the whole fleet because why would you risk the life of a pilot yeah. and why also, would you put a pilot in there when they're not physically capable of operating 
like an F-35 to its fullest capability, whereas a computer can. And, and so they're also, you know, obviously cheaper. So there's all of that. You know, it's, an, it's like I said, it's an entire ecosystem now of information coordination and machine learning and even ultimately combat, AI combat is, is where it's going to ultimately go. It's actually fascinating. So, you know, I don't really cover this space, um, but as you know, I, you know, I, I cover uh, electric vehicles and I've written a little bit about autonomous, autonomous vehicles and how, you know, if you look at the data at some point, it's going to be, there would be no, make no sense for anyone to drive because it's going to be safer. Um, these, these vehicles using AI are just going to be able to drive better uh, than, than people and, and they'll be more efficient uh, in terms of fuel usage. Um, it makes even more sense from a military aspect because not only, like you said, your computer is going to be able to operate that that aircraft uh, a lot more efficiently than and, uh, with, uh, than a human, and also probably without error. Um, but also from a when we're talking about conflicts and war, um, it, you could actually make the argument that this would uh, not completely eliminate, but help uh, reduce the number of civilian deaths because by utilizing AI, we can hone in on the area specifically to target, you know, like you said, the where, where they're holding munitions or where, you know, certain the enemy is, and you don't have to, because I think up to this point, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's always been kind of like, well, we, we think this is where they are. And then mm -hmm. you send in recon missions and stuff, but it's still kind of a, a guess. So, you know, I, I, I wonder if it, <laughs> I wonder if I'm reaching a bit by saying uh, AI could actually, um, you know, reduce the number of civilian deaths during wartime. What, what do you think well, about that? Yeah, it could, because it certainly improves accuracy. It improves your level of intelligence. I mean, to your point there about like, okay, well, we think they're there. Yeah, like there's only so many ways you're going to get that kind of intelligence for like a prospective target, right? You might have satellite imagery, but also obviously a lot of countries and militaries are aware of that and they're good at disguising their forces and their assets so that you can't just see it on a satellite so for that you need human intelligence that's where the whole spy game comes in that's where you have people on the ground that you have you know within an enemy organization or that are just hiding out in plain sight and they can relay to you like okay this guy just went into this building and you know we gotta you know bomb it now but again that intelligence is only as good as the human providing it uh okay. which is not always accurate uh, there could also be a delay there as that information works its way up the chain of command and how quickly it gets to a person who would issue any kind of order or actionable attack on it. Um, and so, again, yeah, that's where you would have, you know, AI could, could streamline and improve that. And it would also help with things like friendly fire, you know, like you get into the fog of war and combat and it can just be really difficult. It can be difficult to see. It can be difficult to track, even with sophisticated equipment that we have we still have friendly fire incidents. It, it happens all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. And AI would certainly cut down on that. And then just the matter of having, like I said, robots, uh, either fully autonomous or remotely controlled, semi-autonomous, you're sending your robots to fight the other guy's robots. That's kind of the best case scenario where, you know, like you're keeping you know, the humans further and further removed from the battlefield. Yeah, yeah. So. Are there any, because you, you talked a bit about drones um, and there's been kind of like this evolution of drones, particularly in the military. Can you tell us a little bit about what you would consider the most advanced drones that are using being used today for military applications? 
The most advanced ones are the wingman drones. They call them uh, companion craft. Uh, and so, like I said, they can fly alongside a manned fighter. They can fly out in front of it. They can probe enemy defenses. They can assist in that targeting. They can find things to, to hit. They can find threats. They can draw fire. They can deploy their own ordnance. They can use jamming equipment to shut down enemy air defense systems so that man fighters can come in and complete their bombing run. Uh, and, you know, they could pretty much do it all. I, I think the only thing that's, you know, kind of really stopping them ultimately from, again, taking over pretty much the entire Air Force is just the fact that, you know, we do, it's not quite there yet. You know, we just we haven't quite made that leap to being like, okay, well, we're going to have a fully autonomous Air Force. But when they put these things and they have put these like AI piloted drones up against manned fighters and the drones win every time it, like it's not even close because they, like i said there's no sensor to shooter timeline there's no double checking there's no like you know taking any minute of pause or to think about it there's no hesitation it's just as soon as it detects the threat it's neutralized almost instantly um and again we talk about these machines you know like an f-35 or whatever these things can fly you know, it, like it, it generate enough gravitational force that would cause a human to pass out. You know, like a human pilot, if you're pulling like five G's, you're probably going to black out within a few minutes. But, you know, these things are capable of going twice that speed. So the in that sense, the human pilot's holding it back. Um, and so those right now are the most sophisticated ones. But we're going to get to a point where everybody has companions. I'm already starting to see it. They just, uh, a company that I follow uh, just deployed like a little mini tank it's like got six wheels and it just goes and it just goes with uh infantry troops so that they can send it out and it has a machine gun on it and they can send it out and it can conduct reconnaissance and do like radar work and give them a lay of the land and defend itself if necessary with the machine gun it has on it and then report there at least at very least give that information back to the infantry group so that they can stay out of harm's way. Okay. And you're going to see that expand further because we're also seeing like in Ukraine, we've already seen uh, seaborne drones. For the most part, those have been on the surface. They're like little, like basically remote controlled speedboats packed with explosives that they're ramming into the Russian fleet. And that's been very effective for them. But it's going to get to a point where all of our seaborne vessels, whether they're, you know, carrier groups or battleships or patrol boats, submarines are going to have their own companion aircraft that can shield them, that can give them, that can expand their radius of like enemy detection and threat detection that can search for mines. The Navy has a mine hunting drone. It, it's called the Sea Hunter. And it just, it just goes around the ocean looking for underwater mines. And that's its only job. So, you know, there, there's some really, really sophisticated ones out there. And it's only going to, you know, go up from there. Would that also be relevant for commercial applications like fishing boats? Oh, or, yeah. Because I'm thinking about, you know, the pirates in certain parts of the world that attack the oil, uh, the tankers or the fishing boats. I, I, will there ever be a, a situation where, like, let's say you have a, a, an oil tanker that has a companion drone flying next to it? Or is that just for military? Sure. Well, you can, it's the same technology. You can just demilitarize it, which is what happens with kind of a lot of military technology. You sure. just kind of, you could take, you could just take the gun off of it and it can still be a very useful asset. And I, I know in like the deep water drilling or when it comes to like oil pipelines 
uh, underwater, you know, they use drones to repair them and inspect them. Uh, you know, I've seen drones being used now, I mean, unmanned vehicles really almost basically just as trucking leader follower technology, where you have a, a truck driver with cargo at the front of a convoy and then a bunch of self-driving trucks behind it hauling uh, goods. Uh, I think in that case, it was beets from a beet farm because they didn't have enough licensed truck drivers to ferry the beets from the extraction point from the farm to the processing facility because you need like a, a especially licensed like a class c truck license or whatever to do that they're having a hard time with the staffing shortages uh and so they had these robots haul the beats to the to the to the processing facility uh mm -hmm. you see it kind of creeping into a lot of like different commercial areas industrial area areas doing jobs that are dangerous for humans warehouse work where you know they can lift these giant pallets and move them rather than have somebody mm -hmm. on a forklift or whatever you know like i said just kind of increasing the safety and what's really been cool about that too it's that you think like oh well it's taking jobs but it's not it's actually just giving people it's taking those same people that'd be doing those dangerous tasks and then putting them in charge of a robot to take the liability out of it so they still mm -hmm. they all get to keep their jobs but they actually just get a better job because now instead of doing that physical manual labor and putting your body at risk you're just controlling a robot and doing it that way well i mean that's always, that's throughout history you know anytime mm -hmm. a new technology comes along the first response is what you know it's going to put all these people out of work there, I've, I've read quite a bit about um the dawn of internal combustion and and how all uh, these horse and buggy companies were just like we're going to lose all these jobs and right but then the the you know ford was saying listen we're going to be able to have eventually be able to move um medicine and food and you know and like all these amazing it's going to make the world a better place um and you're always going to have a kind of a and it's not to sound rude but kind of a, like a luddite mentality where it's just like anything that that serves as um, as progress is seen as as a, a threat to the current way of life, and maybe it is, but that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, yeah. definitely people can say, well, it's all these uh, all, all these these jobs at the at the warehouse are going to be gone, and it's just, but but yeah, I mean, but think of all the things that are going to happen in progress, like you said, and better jobs are going to be, you know, the results of that. Um, right. That's I another mean, conversation to, for another day. But well, yeah, but it's, there, it's, it's oh, basically like John Henry, the steel driving man. You know, it's like, look, yeah. it's great that you are really married to the idea of nailing railroad spikes into the, in the hot <laughs> desert sun. But we got a steam powered right. thing that can do this now. And like, you know, was America any worse off for not having railroad spike drivers? No, we, we found other jobs for them. You know, these other things do right. open up the efficiency, creates other opportunities. Well, a lot of those early railroads were built by slaves anyway, uh, from Russia, China yeah. primarily. Yes. So it's, <laughs> it's like yeah. kind of a double win right there. <laughs> you know? Well, the, the the company you were just talking about um, that you they've written about is that public? Is that a public company? Yes. Okay. And is there if you is where can because I'm I'm assuming some people watching this night are probably going to want to read about it. Yeah. So. Uh, there's a couple one. Uh, well, we could definitely put the Project Wingman one down in the comment okay. section, the report on that, and you get access to that there. Um, and you know, there's like there's but like the, the the way to get all the information is is, is going to be to sign up for secret stockpiles. Like right. there are you know other companies out there that you know I don't mind talking about. But for those ones, you know, we're charging people money for them. Yeah. I can't. Well, listen, I mean, that's the thing, Jason. It's yeah. like, 
you know, a lot of the companies that you've recommended, you recommended them after doing your own intel before anybody else was paying attention to them. And that's the whole point, right? That's the whole point of subscribing to the newsletter because it gives you an opportunity, as Brian always says, or publisher, get to the good grass first. You know, mm-hmm. you, you've recommended many of these companies uh, before they kind of got to the public eye. Um, so it makes complete sense. Uh, but yeah, so we'll, we'll make sure to put a link um, below so people can read more about, you know, what you're looking at right now. Um, in terms of one last question I want to ask you, you know, you've kind of been on the forefront of um, the, the future of defense, I would I would call it. Um, and this is years ago. You were talking about some of these drones before anybody else was talking about them. Um, you were talking about AI before, you know, I, anyone even outside of the government, I, except for you and a couple of other analysts even knew existed. Um, moving forward, what's next? Ah. Uh. I mean, those are the two big ones. Like the basically, we've seen that in Ukraine. We've seen it in uh, now Israel that the economy of scale for drones is so significant, in that they only cost. I mean, they can cost anywhere from twenty to fifty dollars, up to five million or ten or fifteen million, depending on how sophisticated a drone you want to make. But they can all be deployed to the same end of destroying a $70 million fighter jet, uh, or, you know, taking out, you know, like I said, a troop position or an artillery position or anything like that. Uh, AI, like we talked about is absolutely the future of warfare. And I think, you know, basically combining these two things, once the robots, you know, get smarter and, you know, more capable, then I, it, it, their role in warfare is only going to increase. Uh, and I think aside from that, you would also be looking at things uh, both in cyberspace in terms of like hacking and attacks like that. Uh, I've been told like the main goal what the U.S. military ideally wants to develop is basically an ability to hack into China or Russia, any opponent's like defense and create a mirage and basically show them things that aren't there in and hide things and corrupt their their intelligence to such a point that they might even for a period think that they've scored a tremendous victory when in fact their forces are getting obliterated. And then uh, commensurate with that is this race into space, which is also happening just a little bit more slowly. But and it, it actually goes against treaties that were signed. I, you know, back in the nineties, people said, "Hey, we're not going to weaponize space," but they're doing it. Uh, you know, China's yeah. doing it. You know, there's this race now. That's why everybody's suddenly interested in like the moon again. And like, oh, well, we're going to start getting manned missions back to the moon because all this stuff is being militarized because that's the new high ground. You know, the United States mm-hmm. g- going back to World War Two has always maintained a policy of air superiority. We are going to control the skies because that's the highest ground. And if we're up there and you're down there, we're going to win. And so now the whole thing is like, well, what if, you know, we're China or whatever, we're in low Earth orbit or, you know, we're up here and then, you know, we're attacking your satellites. And China's tested weapons like that, satellite killers, either missiles, you know, stuff like that, or uh, basically kind of like zombie satellites that are just hanging out out there waiting to be activated and go attack. Russia has gremlin satellites that it needs, aims to deploy that, that can go and attack other satellites that we have up there because once you get into that technology battle if you are using ai if you are using drones 
what matters is obviously communication. You know, it's the same thing. It would be like right. if someone shut down the internet, you know, that's been the thing for Ukraine where they, there was like that famous thing with like, like Elon Musk didn't activate Starlink so that they could conduct an attack on Crimea. So it just stopped them dead in their tracks. Like they, otherwise they could have, but with no internet, you can't. And so once you, you start to get up there, it's like, okay, well, how we, if we can shut down the enemy's entire military by taking out their satellites, taking out their visibility, taking out their ability to effectively communicate, taking out their ability to control the situation, command and control, then that's the way to win. Uh, so that's that's kind of really where, where it's all headed to. It seems like there's no uh, shortage of opportunities here. No, there's not. <laughs> well listen thank you so much for taking some time out of your day uh to discuss this with us i mean it's i know a lot of people are watching this right now that don't really know a whole lot about the, the direction in which we're going in terms of you know military superiority and using ai and drones and as you mentioned what's going on you know uh, in space which is actually quite fascinating um it was a lot of this is news to me. I read your letter, um, but I like to hear directly from you because every now and then you like drop a little little tidbit of information that you haven't written about yet. So um, always good to to watch your watch your videos. Uh, and if you're watching, um, feel free to, to click the link below and and learn more about uh, what Jason's following. And uh, thanks again, Jason. I hope you have a great yeah, day. Thanks a lot. Appreciate the chat. Yeah, later.